0: have a Bible tonight, we're going to open up first to Exodus 25, which will set the stage for our First Samuel uh, study. We'll get into that in just a little bit. If you want to go ahead and put a bookmark in 1 Samuel 4, that's where we'll end up tonight. But we're going to start looking at Exodus 25, which it'll become pretty clear... Um, while we're doing this. but so let me just kind of set the stage for us. The next few chapters in 1 Samuel are very interesting. And they're really, really interesting stories, cool stories in and of themselves. And really, it's neat to see how God was working way back then. Um, but I, I feel like if there's any portion of the Old Testament that needs a bit of preface, that needs a bit of uh, of of a kind of a introduction, it's this, uh, because there's some things in these chapters, there's some things going on in this portion of the Bible uh, that are not the same as our world is today. And, And the way that they related to God is very different from the way that we relate to God, from the way that we access God. I think we all know that there are things in the Old Testament that are in contrast to how they are on this side of the New Testament, specifically to how we relate to God, how we approach to God. Uh, but uh, with regard to that, at this point in history, in the time of Judges, in the time of 1 Samuel, um, God was very un approachable, um, very unapproachable, as in that there, there wasn't an easy way to access him, In um, and, and, and really the only way you could approach God, the only way that you could access God was vicariously through an advocate, through an intermediary, and even then it was very limited, that the access was very Limited. It is important that we're aware of this when we read the Old Testament because there are some instances where God may seem to be different than he is now. There are some instances where it seems like that's a different God than the one that we know. But but the reason it seems so different is that we are not the same and we don't live under the same parameters and under the same covenant. That's a big word. We're not under the same covenant in the same restrictions that Israel and the world was back. Then, So for us to get the intended message out of any given Old Testament text, we have to keep that in mind. Now, there's a lot of stories in the Old Testament where the contemporary readers were the people that are in, involved in the story. Uh, they could have never really understood the message that God was trying to send because that message really only comes this side of the New Testament. There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament that the people that were involved in them, they probably didn't really know what God was trying to show or trying to prove to the world. World, yet we get the luxury of looking back and seeing how it all makes sense as we get to piece the whole story together and thankfully the new testament gives us some lens some filters through which we can read and interpret and imply uh, apply the old testament uh, but but it's very very important that we understand there is a difference and how the world operated then and how the world operates now and how they approached God or maybe could not approach God and how we get to approach God. Now, the book of Hebrews is your friend on this subject. If you want to know the difference in the way it was then, the way it is now, um, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 and 10, we'll reference these a lot tonight, but Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10 are really important chapters that if you study them thoroughly and read them clearly, you'll understand what the difference is. Just a snapshot at how the contrast uh, is made between old and new. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, as, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So th- we, we kind of get the explanation there. That the covenant the Old Testament was operating under, Old Testament, Old Covenant, the covenant the Jews were under, um, it had some faults. It was, it was limited. And, and there's a reason for that. It was really to show them that they could not approach God by their own works in their own flesh. They needed someone greater. They needed a Savior. And of course, Jesus is that Savior who brings us that better covenant, that new covenant. Verse 13 of chapter 8 says, in speaking of this new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As in, the way things were done back then, we are not held under those same restrictions. And you'd be surprised, a lot of Christians operate and act as if and approach God as if they're still under that old covenant, and we've never even lived in a world where that old covenant had any power which is really just comes down to unfortunate biblical teaching or unfortunate biblical instruction where people just didn't rightly divide the word of truth. And, and again, that's, that, that's something that happens very commonly, unfortunately, in the world. Now, the scripture is still God's word. This is not me saying the Old Testament isn't God's word. It's making it very clear the old covenant uh, is no longer uh, ruling over us. The, the, the Bible, the Old Testament is still God's word. Sometimes we only get the message God intended and the message that God embedded back then through our New Testament, through our Christ centered eyes. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, says this These things happen to them. This is Paul talking about the Old Testament. As an example, they were written down for our instruction. So Paul, you know, the, the the Jew people that are that are Jewish that you know don't believe that Jesus is Messiah and, and don't don't recognize the New Testament, this would be very offensive to them, and they would they would they would very much deny this. But this is Paul, a Jew who converted to Christianity, a Jew who saw that Jesus was Messiah, who put it all together, who pieced it all together. We can take his word for it. He was the expert on the law, the expert on the old covenant, who saw the light and saw. the that Jesus took us to a better place. So Paul says the entire purpose of the Old Testament, especially the narratives, as in the stories, Genesis, Exodus, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, all the stories, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, the Old Testament, especially the stories, these things happened to be an example for us. Here's the thing. They, they are not the rule for us to follow, as in we don't always read what they tell us and say, I'm going to do it just like they did it. Does that make sense? There's a story in Judges where Gideon is trying to decide whether he's going to follow God or not or trust God or not. And then he puts the fleece out because he needs some proof. But we who know the New Testament say, no, 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 we don't have to put the fleece out because the Bible says to walk by faith. Gideon wasn't walking by faith. He was walking by sight. He wasn't going to obey God until God gave him proof. But we know the New Testament says, no, we don't have to wait on proof. We walk by faith. We know God's gonna make a way. We don't have to wait until he puts some dew on the garment in the morning, right? But, but we often mix this stuff up, don't we? We often confuse it. But the point is, just because someone did it a certain way doesn't mean we do it the same way. In some instances, we see how they did it and realize we can do it better and we can do it different because we're not under the same limitation and the same law that they were. Does that make sense? In some instances, we see that God works in the same way. In others, we see that we can do it a different and better way. Same God, but the difference between us and them is that we know God in the free pardon of sin. We know God through Jesus and Jesus lives in us and that wasn't the case for them. Wasn't the case. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So these things are for our example. Now, you may ask the question, and and this is a good question. So if you've never thought about it before, maybe this is a question that you'll suddenly think, well, that's a good question. Because somebody's gonna ask you this question if you explain how the the New Testament, Old Testament works. Someone's gonna ask you, well, what if somebody picks up the Bible that's never heard any of this? What happens if somebody picks up the Bible and reads from Genesis to Revelation? What if they don't know that as they're reading? Well, it's gonna be a problem if if they stop in Leviticus, And I'm not being silly. I mean, if they just stop it halfway through it, then they're going to have some problems because they're going to try to do it as the Jews did it. And you really can't do it as the Jews did it because they're, number one, they're not unless they're in Jerusalem. And even if they're in Jerusalem, there's no temple anymore. There's no sacrificial system anymore. So that should tell people something's different because literally that was burnt down right after Jesus rose from the grave. God God made sure that there was no way you could be stuck in that world. But my point is, if, you, if, if someone naively picked the Bible up and they started reading in Genesis, if they get all the way to the end, here's what they're going to find out. As you read the Old Testament, even though the New Testament is a long way off, it's obvious as you read the Old Testament, things are not as they are meant to be. It's obvious. It's clear there are some cracks in the concrete as you're reading the Old Testament. And you see unfulfilled promises, and tonight's story in Samuel is a perfect example of that. But number two, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to sense this longing. You're going to sense this desire for a better way. You're going to see this from Abraham, from Joseph, from Moses, from David, from all the prophets. They are always acknowledging this is not the perfect forever plan. This is a Preview of something better. So by the time you get to the New Testament, you will see the New Testament answers. The longing of the old, as in all those desires of a better way, the New Testament comes along and says, Jesus is the better way. You've heard it was said this way. I say it's done this way. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the law is here. Something greater than the Sabbath day is here. You know those verses, don't you? Jesus says, I am the greater and better way. Those were just a preview. So even if you just read the Bible from front to back, you've never been to church, You've never never heard Christianity explained, even if you read the Bible in a vacuum. I promise you, when you get to the New Testament, it will all make sense because the New Testament carefully and clearly and thoroughly and repeatedly explains it all. You don't need a preacher, you don't need a degree, you don't need to have all the information that maybe I or someone else has. You can get it yourself if you just read it from front to back. If you stop halfway through, then you'll be trying to sacrifice animals and try to obey laws and do all kinds of convoluted things that will never get you to God. But thankfully, we can know the whole story. Thankfully. Thankfully. So there's no way, if you read it all, you get to Jesus in the New Testament and, and then you go back to doing it the way it was before. There's just no way you would do that. Somebody might try to make you or lead you into that way, but that, that's not going to happen if you do it wholeheartedly. So we've laid a foundation down for us tonight. So I want to talk about the major difference between God now and God then, or the way we relate to God now versus the way they related to God then. If you're students of the Bible, you know that God's accessibility in the Old Testament changes quite a bit from beginning to end. And really, right out the gate, right out of the gate, God goes from being very much present and active in the world one on one with people and quickly things change. How quickly? I mean chapter 3 things change. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. So what happened to, fall, to make the world fall away? People hid from God. The story is not God got mad and God said, get out. The story isn't God hid himself. The story is that Adam and Eve sinned and in their sinful nature, they turned away from God. That's the story. And that's what's wrong with all of us. We hide ourselves. We turn away. We have fallen away. After the fall, anytime you see that God tried to make himself known, people were always hiding. They were always turning away. They were always resisting. And and they were afraid even. And And it became clear that people should be afraid because in their sin, in their flesh, they could not stand in the presence of a holy God. Even Moses had to hide behind a cleft in the mountain, an opening in the cave of, of, of the mountain because even he could only get a glimpse of God's backside, as it were. Exodus 33 says that God says to the people of Israel as they're trying to get up the mountain, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So if you wanna know how accessible God was in the Old Testament, not very. All the laws in the world, all the rules in the world, how how close could you get to God? You couldn't get very close. Even Moses had to hide between a veil and a rock. Now, you can read some Old Testament stories where God makes himself known, but there's so many barriers between between people, it's obvious. And and John, John, the disciple, John comes along, looking back at the Old Testament, and John says this. No one has ever seen God. And, and, and people will say, well, well, but didn't, didn't Moses see part of God? Didn't Abraham? Didn't David? And, and John says, let me just say this if that's what you call seeing God, that's a pretty pitiful sight. Does that make sense? If, if what they saw was the fullness of God, there's not much to see. As in they were veiled, they were separated, they were distanced. Just you see what I'm saying? Religion only got them so close. And John says, I'm not satisfied with what they saw. But listen to the story I've got to tell because I'll tell you how I stood face to face with God in the flesh. You wanna know the difference in the Old Testament, New Testament? The Old Testament, no one could ever see God and live. The New Testament, you can walk hand in hand, side by side, eye to eye with him. Pretty big difference, isn't it? People may have saw some manifestation, but John says that was not the real deal. So they couldn't see God and live. So when, in the Old Testament, God institutes a a a temporary way to help people get as close as they could to him, to get some kind of connection, to answer that cry of their heart in this limited way. So that's where we get the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system, which gave limited access, temporary atonement, previewed the full and final redemption through Christ. Now, if you know the story, Israel's at Mount Sinai. They get the law, which confirms they're guilty in their sin. They get the law, and what happens? That Moses is up on the mountain getting the commandments, and they're down at the bottom of the mountain partying and reveling and worshiping idols, which should tell you that they they were never going to be able to keep the law. Moses comes down the mountain, and what does he do with the commandments? He breaks them out of anger. But what's the symbol there? They were broken as soon as they were given. You see that? He shattered the commandments because they were already broken. So God gives them a sacrificial system. It would not get them all the way to God. It would just help them temporarily get some sort of connection, some sort of uh, a, a remedy. A priest who was appointed, they would represent the people, they would go into a holy temple, a holy tabernacle. Initially, it was portable, it would, it would soon be built permanently. They would go into a temple, there was veils and altars, there was an intercessory uh, uh, procedure. Thankfully, you really don't know, you really don't have to know all the details. You don't have to know how it worked, because we'll never live in that world where it worked that way. Thank God. But the gist of it was that they built a temple. There was drapes and curtains and there was a, uh, there was a sanctuary where everyone could gather. Well, as long as you were a man, uh, you could go into the outer court, women and children, you were stuck on the outside. Men could go into the outer courtyard where you could drop your offering off into the hands of a priest and then the priest would take it into the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary, the holy place. And then the high priest would go into the holiest place, the holy of holies and would perform a sacrifice on your behalf. And you waited at the outside hoping that something was done for you and you might feel something, but it wasn't gonna be much uh, in terms of the, in, the, the vicarious connection with God. But the priest would go into the holy place where there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've watched Indiana Jones before, you might know something about the Ark of the Covenant. But if that's all you know about the Ark of the Covenant, thankfully, the Bible's got, us, got more to tell us. Um, it's a large chest containing relics of the Exodus period where God would make his presence felt at certain times to certain people. Now, there's a lot more to be said, but I wanna read the Bible's description of the ark and hear how God says he would make himself known around this place. Um, And that's why we've opened our Bibles to Exodus 25. So verses 10 through 16 is gonna explain what the ark was. There's a lot of details about how the ark was built and and I'll explain that in, in just a minute. So they shall make an ark out of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, A cubit and a half its width. Now, a cubit is 18 inches. So you can imagine this is kind of like a very large chest, Um, a a, a very large um, chest like you would have at the foot of your bed or in your closet, something like that. Um, A a, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. Um, So again, about 20-something inches uh, uh, high, 20-something inches wide, and uh, 30 or so inches uh, long. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make it uh, uh, make on it molding of gold around it so it was very glossed up, very glamorized. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put it on the four corners two rings shall be on one side, two on the other. you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so uh, uh, it's got these hooks on the side to where the poles could slot through so that you could so it could be carried because they were moving this thing around so I know this is kind of a, not kind of a bad analogy because this is not this is the living God. This, and, but a casket, you know, right, right, has those poles on both sides of it, uh, right? And, and that's kind of the best, the best way, the best visual aid I can give you. Um, and again, maybe, the, maybe they are based off of this in, in reality, right? And, and, but a, ca- a, a chest with these poles on both sides. The poles shall be uh, in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. Verse 16, you shall put into the ark, the testimony which I have given you. So inside the ark were the, were the were the broken, the broken tablets, the broken tablets. Also, Hebrews tells us that, the, that, that some of the manna that fell from heaven was put in the ark. Uh, and the, the rod of Aaron, uh, the, the, the rod, the staff of Aaron that, that budded, it was a dead stick that bloomed, which was a picture of God giving life to the dead. So in the chest was uh, the, the commandments that were broken originally, um, the, the, a piece of the manna that fell from heaven, uh, and the staff of Aaron. So these, these relics of how God had worked in these days, reminding them that these are just pictures of something greater that they had not yet been able to experience. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered wood. You shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. So on top of the chest was a lid, essentially a lid. So the chest has a lid on it. There are these two angels, cherubim are just fancy word for angels. These two angels that are positioned on both sides of the chest, like on one and the other. And they're looking down into the chest. Uh, make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub uh, at the two ends of, it, of one piece with the mercy seat. So it's attached. The cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I have given you. So they're kind of a repeat. The chest has a lid, angels looking down, covered in gold. Verse 22. And there I will meet with you. This is the whole point of this. There I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I have given you in commandment to the children of Israel. So who is he talking to? He's talking to the high priest. So as the high priest brings the sacrifice, brings the lamb's blood, brings the goat's blood into the holy place, he would pour it on the mercy seat. It would pour off of the gold and it wouldn't stain because it was pure gold. It would roll off the mercy seat onto the ground and there the sacrifice was made. There the atonement was given. There Israel was given temporary reconciliation with God and it was there and only there that anybody in Israel got to commune with God and got to feel the presence of God. So God would meet with them around the ark, but a veil was placed in front of them. So in, they're in this holy place. There's a veil, a very thick veil, uh, curtains upon curtains behind the priest or protecting the priest and the rest of the people. Oh, by the way, he's got a rope tied around his ankle because he might fall over dead in there. Happened a lot. So very convoluted, very, very specific. Um, Over in chapter 26, verse 31, we get a description of the veil. Just a page over. You shall make a veil woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of a cherubim. You shall hang it from the four pillars of the acacia wood, overlay with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. You shall hang them, you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So at the front of the sanctuary, there were four pillars, which is why we've got four columns back here, representing uh, the, the presence of God, the promises of God, the, 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 the covenant of God. So there's the, diff- there's the divider, there's a separation between the priest and the rest of the people. So now we, we, know, we know there's plenty that you can go and read in Hebrews about how Christ is our ultimate sacrifice. We no longer need a temple like this. We no longer have to have a priest that goes to a holy place once a year and does this repeat after repeat, you know, year after year. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The veil was torn, right? Right? symbolizing that there's no separation between God and anybody anymore because greater than the blood on the mercy seat is the blood of Jesus on the cross. And here's how Hebrews interprets that. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things or pictures, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So what did Jesus do on the cross? He died for our sins once and for all. He takes his blood before the Father at the mercy seat in heaven. He pours it on the mercy seat and you and I have un. Unfettered, unrestricted access to God forever and ever and ever through Jesus. Verse 26. As it is, he's appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So all this Old Testament, Ark of the Covenant, veils, that's all over. Whew, thankfully, right? Hebrews 10, verse 12 says, When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the power of God. And from the power of God, from the right hand of God, what's he been doing? He's been pouring out his spirit to his people. So what happened in the Old Testament? The priest in the holy place feels the presence of God, walks out, feels nothing. You and I, Jesus is at the right hand of God, pouring out power from heaven to earth. It's very different, isn't it? How different? Well, the Old Testament previewed this. Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw a picture that God was gonna put his spirit within us. So not a priest at a holy place feeling it a little bit and then leaving. The spirit of God's gonna go past the veil to the hearts of people because of what Jesus has done. The apostle Paul took this to a whole other level when he said this. We are are the temple of the living God if you ever hear me say something like God is not stuck in this building it's because he is not stuck in this building because this isn't the temple you are you I we individually are the temple of the living God because the spirit of God dwells in our hearts God says, I'll make them my dwelling place. I'm gonna walk with them. I'm gonna be with them. They're gonna be my people and I am their God. Isn't it a lot better on this side of the cross in resurrection? Why would we try to do it the old way? We can't even do it the old way. Why would we try to do it halfway like the old way? It's impossible to do it. And it, it, it's really obviously not, not desirable. So we are, dwell, we are the dwelling place of God So much that this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Clearly, it's much different and much better than how they experienced it in the Old Testament, isn't it? Back then, God was basically confined to a box. That's reducing it down a little bit, but don't you understand how they kind of saw it? Here's what happened. They initially saw this as a limitation, but after a while, the Jews thought this might not be a bad thing. I mean, God's not looking over our shoulder, checking on us all the time. We know where God's at. He's behind that veil in that holy place, and he doesn't really go, he doesn't know what I'm doing. He doesn't go follow me home, and even though he did know what they were doing, and he did look down from heaven, but you see how they kind of devolve this into something far from what it was supposed to be? God was stuck, and, and, and don't you see how people do this with church? Oh, God's only in that building. God doesn't know what I do at home. He doesn't care what I do at work. God doesn't really have anything to do with my life. He's just at that building. He's at that altar. He's in that preacher. He's, he's up there. He's not with me. I go there and I feel him, but I don't really feel him anywhere else. If that's the way you've experienced God, I, I promise you somebody's lied to you. It's better than that. But they thought, hey, God's stuck in a box and, and, and their sensitivity in the building was heightened, but their sensitivity everywhere else was, was depleted. And here's something else that this God box did for people. They convinced themselves that God was in the box not because of their weakness, but because of his own limitation. They convinced themselves that, well, God must be stuck in that box. God can't get to us. And don't you see how the devil turned this on its head? And the devil does this. Sometimes there's a case where God isn't doing something because of where we are or where we aren't, but we convince ourselves that God's the one that's got the problem or God's the one that's got the hold up. And what this does, it makes us look at God narrowly and we see him as an object. We see him as a box that we can carry around, push around, open up every once in a while, look inside and then go back to doing what we're doing. But we think, well, well, God must must be weak. God must be limited. God is stuck in that box. I can do whatever I wanna do, but God just, God only lives in that box. Listen, there are things on this side of heaven that may not ever be as as he intended, but that's not a sign of God's limitations. That's a sign of our own limitations. There are things that will never be as they should be and as they are meant to be. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. But here's what Israel did. And you can turn to 1 Samuel and we're gonna wrap up around this story. Israel, as they developed this warped understanding of God since he was in this box, they basically turned God into a genie. You've seen the movies, you've read the books, you know the stories. A genie lives in a bottle and God lives in a box. And they thought, I wonder if we could control God I wonder if we could push this box around say a prayer rub our hands together and turn him loose now we aren't much different are we different are we we treat God as if we're the doing we're the one doing him a favor oh we show up at church we're paying him a visit we turn around and attempt to control him and get him to do our bidding but isn't that backwards of course it's backwards Remember the second temptation of Jesus where the devil took Jesus up to the high place and said and quoted the Bible at Jesus. Psalm says that he'll give his angels charge over you. Cast yourself down. He's gotta help you. He's gotta catch you. He's gotta protect you. The devil manipulated God's word into it being a magic wish, into being a command towards God, not the other way around. And listen here. God will never be manipulated nor forced into doing anything he's not already determined to do. God's hand cannot be forced. God's will cannot be thwarted. God's word is not a bullet in the chamber of our will. It's a prescription for us to accept and follow. Here's something we need to understand. God's word may be small enough and compact enough to hold in your hand, but that doesn't mean it's for us to control The control comes from the Bible to us. Does that make sense? God's word may be small and seem like it's at our bidding, but the Bible is for us to obey, not for us to manipulate and attempt to cause God to do our bidding. God's approachable now. In the Old Testament limitations, the ark was to show Israel that in spite of their sin, God was still making exceptions to the rule of not dwelling near sin. But God's word in our hands doesn't mean he's here to do our bidding, but rather that he's made himself known so that we can do his. Does that make sense? I wanna read quickly through 1 Samuel 4 at what happens when we look at God as if he's something we can control. We push this box around, carry the word around, act as if God is someone that's gotta listen to us. Here's what happens in 1 Samuel 4. The word of the Lord, the word of Samuel came into all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped up beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who, were about, who killed about 4,000 men in the ar- of the army in the field. And when the people had come, Into the camp, the elders of Israel said, "Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, and when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh, and they might that they might bring there from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now the Philistines heard the noise of the shout and they said, what does this sound of this great, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid for they said God has come into the camp and they said, woe to us for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? And they didn't realize there was just one. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become like the servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. They had such a shallow view of God. They thought he was just a tool in their box, toolbox. Is that how you view God? Is God just a card you pull out? Is God just a resource you pull out when you need to get bailed out? I hope that we have a higher, more sacred view of God because he demands and deserves more than that, doesn't he? It's so easy to shift our understanding, though. We turn God into a means of getting health or a means of getting wealth, a means of getting our way. But we know that's not how you approach God. We know that's what led to the fall in the first place because they tried to control God, not be controlled. Romans 12 calls us to present ourselves before God as a living sacrifice, not the other way around. After this, one of the priest's wives, Phineas, Phineas' wife was pregnant. She gave birth to her son over in verse 19. And it says, the daughter-in-law Phineas of Eli, Phineas's wife was with child due to be delivered and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth and then from her labor pains came upon and for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. You've probably heard this evoked through the years, the spirit of Ichabod. You know what the spirit of Ichabod is? It's when anyone It's when we view God as a cosmic slot machine, as a cosmic vending machine, as a genie in a bottle. It's when we see God as a commodity to control. It's when we see God as someone that should obey us. We replace his glory with our own glory. God does not share the stage. Their glory was put in front of his, so he left the building or left the nation. It's our nature, it's our tradition to drag God down to this level. We see him as a means to exalt our kingdom. But what is the message of the Bible? That we pray, not our kingdom, but thy kingdom. Not my will, but thy will. Seek his kingdom first. When we see God as a means of advancing our own kingdom, you know what that reveals? It reveals that we we have a lot of other gods that we serve too. We just have God, we have God that we turn to every once in a while, but we have other things that we turn to. When God doesn't work out, we've got bottles that we open up. We've got people that we turn to. We've got things that we lean on. When God doesn't show up for us, we turn to something else. We reduce God to just being a commodity. People come to church to seek God, but then they turn to other sources. But I wanna make it clear, God is not just another stepping stone of this world. He's not your job. He's not your political party. He's not your favorite pastime. Those things are commodities. God is your king. There's a difference, isn't there? If you see God as just another commodity, well, I've got my money and I've got my job and I've got my family and I've got my political party and these all exist for me to be happy. If you think God is just another category, God is much greater than that. God is a king and he sits on the throne, not on a shelf. It turns out that Israel had many other idols that they cling to. After years of spending, of God being absent, of God being away, the prophet Samuel raises up 20 years later and the Ark of the Covenant is finally brought back. But Samuel wants the people to know, just because the Ark is back doesn't mean God is back. Because God is not stuck in that box. God has been on a throne in heaven all this time. The way we're going to get God back in our nation is not by just paying tribute to the box. It's not by going through the motions. It's by surrendering to him. Flip over to chapter 7. I want to show you a couple verses and we'll wrap and we'll, and we'll be done. Samuel calls the people, tells them to put away their idols. Chapter 7, verse number 8. We'll look at this in more depth next week. But he says in verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And the scripture says that the thunder rolls and the lightning strikes and the people begin praying and they begin seeking God and they surrender to God. And in verse 12, it says Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer, which means the Lord has helped us. So we go from Ichabod to Ebenezer from aban- that should say abandoned by God to rescued by God. What was the difference? They surrendered. Why did Ichabod become the slogan for the nation? Because they tried to see God as something they could control. They tried to manipulate God. Samuel showed up and said, guys, that's not how it works. Surrender. You want to see God thunder and move and save our nation and save our world and save our lives? It's through surrender. You don't negotiate with him. You don't bargain with him. You don't demand him to do this or that. We worship, we serve, we surrender. That's how we must approach God. We've been given full access to him. We've been given complete, unfiltered access to God. Have you surrendered to him? Is the question. Are you looking for something from him? Or are you looking for him to make you someone for his kingdom? There's two kinds of people. There's two kinds of believers. The one that sees God in a box as someone they can control and something they can get. Or the one that sees God on the throne and surrenders to him and bows before him and says, make me someone I need to be for you. The former may seem more pressing, but the latter is what saves our lives and opens us up. This much better. The Lord can help us. He can show us what's what's beyond this life if we surrender to Him, to break us out of the box that we're in, to step into a life that He's enabled us. Church, we have it so much better than they did. They didn't know any better. We know better. God's not stuck in this building. God's not stuck on Wednesdays and Sundays. He's bigger than that. He's on a throne in heaven and his power is coming to us. His spirit is coming to us. If we surrender to him, if we confess our narrow-minded views and realize this life is about him and for his glory, it will be said of our generation like it was of Samuel's that God has helped us. God has saved us. Through Christ, we have access to so much more. His Spirit's in us. His power is on us. We can be changed and make a difference in the world for Him. So let's go to Him tonight and ask Him to make a difference in our hearts, to free us from this old way and to show us the better way. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. That The... the, 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 the The epitaph of our generation doesn't have to be Ichabod. It doesn't have to be that God has left us, the glory has left us. It's better than that. It's bigger than that. We can raise up an Ebenezer. We can raise up a rock of tribute and say God has helped us. God has made a difference because we surrendered to him. Lord, thank you for showing us how much better we have it in our generation than the Old Testament days. Thank you for making Jesus our savior and opening the gates of heaven and pouring your power down on us. And God, may we not repeat their mistakes. May, may, may we not treat you as a commodity. May we not treat you as a genie in a lamp. May we not try to manipulate and control you, but may we surrender to you and say, have your way, have your will, thy kingdom come. May we surrender and say, Lord, you are the king. We are here to serve you. Would you save us? Would you make a difference in our world? Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your guidance. We pray you would lead us and direct us until we come back in Jesus' name, amen.